Well, good morning, and uh, thank you for faithfully praying for me over this past week as I worked through this passage that Michael read earlier. We're only covering six verses today, and yet they are packed, they're jam-packed with practical applications that are so important for Christians continuing to walk here on the earth. As I study these, you can tell different elders do different things, but there was one word that just kept pressing in on me. And so I want you to center your mind on that as we begin. It's a word we probably don't think about much day to day, but a word that is a must in our pursuit of God. And the word is perseverance. I will tell you there, the definitions abound as to what perseverance means. But I would give you just a few. Perseverance means to keep on keeping on. Webster's definition, to continue steadfastly, especially in the face of discouragement. One Bible dictionary to persevere means that one may continue in a course of action, even in the face of difficulty or with little or no prospect of success. It often denotes an action of experiencing victory in the continuance of one's unceasing efforts, no matter what the odds or actual outcome. Another definition. Perseverance is the Holy Spirit within us that causes us to continue in spite of the circumstances surrounding us. And still others describe it as simply patiently moving forward. Thinking of this last definition reminded me, however, that in the world we live in, the thought of patiently moving forward in the quick fix culture we're surrounded by is somewhat of a lost virtue. Whatever we need, whatever we do, of prime importance is speed and a quick favorable outcome, not, not perseverance. Just look around. Fast food restaurants, Jiffy Loop oil changes, instant oatmeal, Amazon Prime, microwaves in every kitchen, and of course, Instagram and text messages for immediate responses. It's no wonder then in a country of instant and immediate, we're not too big on perseverance. Patiently moving forward. I read recently about a question asked to a panel of experts Here's the question for you to answer as well. What do diets, exercise programs, marriage, and the Christian life have in common? Diets, exercise programs, marriage, and the Christian life have in common. Answer. They are fairly easy and even exciting to begin, but not so easy to hang on to and go the distance. Let's face it, for most, the Christian life, it's not a hundred-yard dash. It's a marathon. It's a long-distance race of perseverance running in the same direction, that of obedience. Starting well may, in fact, be easy. Finishing well can be quite another manner. Listen to Paul's words found in 1 Corinthians 15:58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Steadfast, immovable, always abounding. He goes on in 2 Timothy 3.14, but continue, 
But continue now in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Clearly one goal of the Christian's continuing walk is that he or she might conform themselves to the image of Jesus Christ as found in Romans 8.29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Sadly, not everyone who hears the word, learns the word, perseveres in the truth, and therefore easily tossed about by the winds of every doctrine. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. In this section of scripture today, Paul exhorts Timothy and to all of us as well how to go the distance. Timothy found himself in a difficult situation that he had to confront the false teachers who had risen up among the Ephesian leaders by refuting their errors and by teaching the truth. It was not an easy position to be in. Yet he perseveres through the trial by being steadfast and immovable in the truth and patiently moving forward towards the end goal of walking faithfully and going the distance. My hope today is we too would realize the importance of going the distance. So I titled this message, Perseverance and Going the Distance. So let's pray as we begin here this morning. Lord, I thank you for this passage. As I said, it's so practical for a Christian and yet convicting as we think about the times we would like to give up. I pray that as we study this, that each of us would be able to take at least one thing away, Lord, that we'll be able to apply in our lives and it would just uh, be open to the Holy Spirit's prompting and working and conviction. So thank you again for what you've taught me and help me to expound in a way that others would understand. In Christ's name, amen. So I broke this passage up into four sections, with the first being the initial part of verse 11, actually 11a. But I want to start reading back at verse 8. So this is 1 Timothy 6, starting at verse 8. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that would be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they had erred from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Then verse 11, But thou, O man of God, flee these things. My first point is to persevere, flee from worldliness. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but when you're driving, most road signs offer helpful advice or general principles. For example, watch for ice on bridge, or school zone ahead, or pass with care. In response, you, the driver, must observe the circumstances, draw upon experience, make appropriate decisions, and then apply the sign's principle. In other words, the driver must exercise wisdom. And then there are other signs that don't require complex reasoning at all, as they are hard and fast rules and demand unquestioning obedience. Speed limit, 75. 
But it's, unless you're in Texas, we went down to Austin. They don't obey the speed limits in Texas, but in Kansas, we obey the speed limits. 75. Do not enter. It's clear. Stop. Very clear. Simple obedience. If we don't, then a law enforcement officer will give you a little added incentive to help you remember these commands. So as we begin here in verse 11, we see specific commands to obey. And note here that these commands are directed right to Timothy himself. But thou, that's you Timothy, you. But thou, O man of God, which in essence is setting Timothy apart from the faithless apostate teachers earlier described in this chapter. You, Timothy, a man of God, unlike those who aren't, you must flee these things. The Greek word here for flee is fugio, and is the word we derive the meaning of fugitive, someone who is slaying the law. Now, on one hand, fleeing may seem like running, which some may list as cowardly. Yet in many instances, running is the best way to avoid a most certain defeat. It reminded me when I was back in high school, Wichita North, there was a lot of, a lot of racial violence going on, especially in the school system. And sadly, in the hallways between classes and after school, there were often fights taking place. And I knew exactly who these people were who were starting these fights. So my approach for my own safety was to stay clear of these guys. If I saw so-and-so coming towards me or a group of these guys, I would turn and immediately go the other direction. They were bigger, they were stronger, and hand-to-hand -hand combat was not going to be my best strategy. Such it is in fleeing from worldliness. Certainly in Paul's plea here to flee, he is no doubt talking about these things previously mentioned in verses 3 through 10 that Kent covered last week, like false doctrine, materialism, and the love of money discontentment, covetousness, and selfishness, all temptations of the world looking around us. This command is very applicable as we think about our own lives today, for we too should flee these things. As I thought about this, really for most of us, the temptations of worldliness that often lead to sin can be summarized into three categories. First, we should flee from sinful thoughts. Isn't it true that out of the heart cometh evil thoughts? Mark 7, 21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts. Why is there such a temptation to be drawn towards materialism and earthly possessions, those things that the world has to offer? Could it be that we do not believe God is enough for us? Is our trust in Him lacking, thinking that He won't provide? It's been said that all of our struggles with sin are at the core of struggles to believe in God. In our hearts, do we really believe Him? Do we really believe His Word? The thought, the first thing. Secondly, we should flee from evil desires. Ephesians 2, 3, Among whom also we are, all had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We often associate such desires of the flesh with lust and pride. Lust of the flesh, 
lust of the eyes and the pride of life, 1 John 2. In this chapter, we see how this intertwines with the love of money. But can't this be applied to any of our selfish desires? Even things like doubt or despair. Often these are just selfishness from within. If you struggle with any kind of selfishness, doesn't it all boil down again as to who is preeminent in your life? Is God sovereign? Is he the one in control? We really can trust him to deliver us from these sinful desires. And then lastly, we should flee from sinful actions. As the phrase goes, the thought leads to desire. Desire leads to action. It's a downward spiral that if we don't flee from, don't run from, the end result can be devastating. James 1.14-15 puts it well, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust, his desires, and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, or full grown, bringeth forth death. As Christians, we must be diligent, and we must be on guard, and we must persevere in our efforts to combat this. So that's point number one, to persevere, to go the distance, flee from worldliness and the temptations that lead to sin. So moving on, 11b. So I'll start 11a, 11b. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and then 11b, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. One advantage of the King James in this scripture is it it plods along pretty good. So, to persevere, we're to follow after fruitfulness. While the first of Paul's commands looked at certain things we should flee, we now look at the things we're to follow, or in essence, to pursue. And this pursuit will require effort and determination. In other words, these things will require work on our part, a lot of work, hard work, as we patiently move forward. It <clears throat> reminded me of a football game, and the announcer says, so-and-so running back has accumulated over 100 yards in this game. Yet what isn't said by the announcer is that the yardage came by being tackled and knocked down time and time and time again. Yet in perseverance, he gets back up and keeps moving forward. Such it is with this list. And hopefully as we go through this, I can describe it in a way that you can really practically grasp and apply. So what do we learn here? What are we to follow? The first is righteousness. I'll define this simply as conformity to God's word. 1 John 3, 7 says, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth or practices righteousness is righteous, even as he, Christ, is righteous. This can be summarized by saying, Pursuing righteousness means conforming to God's will in how you think and how you act. Thus, in order to accomplish this, you have to know God's word. Or this pursuit becomes impossible. For instance, by way of illustration, the world says... Play on your phones all day long. Stay in bed as long as you want. Eat as much as you'd like. Isn't it all about you? God's word says be diligent. 
Rise early. Be not gluttons. Die to self. Whose words will you conform to? Conformity to God's word. Secondly, godliness. Let's say so-and-so comes up to you and says of another person, so-and-so, she sure is a godly person. What do you think of when you hear those words? One author's definition goes like this. Godliness is the authentic and abiding desire to glorify God through every thought, every reaction, every word, and every deed. I really like that. Authentic and abiding desire to glorify God through every thought, every reaction, every word, and every deed. I thought, this is a phrase we ought to put on our mirrors in our bathroom. So that every morning, when we brush our teeth, we could look at this and say, what is godliness? I like the emphasis here on authentic and abiding. It's not fake. It's real. Another word we could use here is devoted. Devoted to God by loving Him and having an earnest desire to glorify Him. That is the genuine Christian who is abiding in Christ throughout his or her entire day. Titus 2, 11-13 says, For the grace of God that bringeth us salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would people describe you as godly? Not here. I'm talking about in the world. At your workplace. Neighbors. Friends. Family. Thirdly, faith. My Bible simply says in the footnotes, faith is a trust in God that grows stronger. Another definition, faith is resting, that's a key word, resting, resting in God's promises to provide, protect, empower, and guide in every situation in life. As Hebrews 11, the great faith chapter says, now faith is the substance of the realization of things hoped for, for without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Is your faith growing stronger and stronger every day? Patiently moving forward. I ask myself this question. I'll ask you as well. For this is the true test of faith. Do you trust God in your frustrations, in your irritations, in the trials that he sends your way? Or do you instead... Be like the world, grumble, murmur, complain, even question, questioning and sometimes you get angry. Why is this happening? So to persevere, we are also to follow or pursue, fourthly, love. Again, my Bible says love is a maturing affection for God and man. It's interesting, we often make this mistake thinking that love just flows effortlessly. For if we have to work on it, it must not be love at all. That is such wrong thinking. For if love doesn't require diligent effort, then why would the Bible so often command us to love one another? Ephesians 4, 1 and 2 say, I therefore, 
I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation, the calling wherewith you are called, with all lowliness, with all meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. Lowliness, meekness, long suffering, forbearance, forbearance, all part of a maturing affection for one another. Yet, we live in a selfish world. And even we as Christians battle selfish thoughts each and every day. Yet, we are commanded to put away such selfishness and fully grasp what it means to abide in Christ's love. This love is the agape love he has for us. A growing and maturing love that we must strive to demonstrate to those around us. A love that seeks to give and not to gain. Number five, patience. Or the ESV says steadfastness. Or another definition would be endurance. When we are called towards steadfastness, it simply means we are to endure in the midst of difficult circumstances. It means we press on and persevere when times seem tough and it seems the end of the trial is nowhere in sight. Remember how Christ warned his disciples in Matthew 24 that difficult times will be coming, but he also promises in verse 13 that he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And then lastly, meekness or gentleness. Most commentators describe this attribute as power under control. For they go on to say that the courageous endurance that one would have without gentleness could make a person a tyrant. I've known men who are CEOs of companies who are brilliant and even courageous at running their businesses during turbulent times, but they're absolutely terrible at supervising employees because of their authoritarian style. There's no meekness, no gentleness. Life is miserable for every employee underneath them, and maybe, maybe even some of you men have a, a supervisor like that, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. The actual Greek word here for meekness is propathia. And it doesn't mean meekness in the sense of weakness, but really quite the opposite. As one commentator, which I, I really appreciate because I could visualize this, used the illustration of Alexander the Great's horse. It was a mighty, a powerful animal, but completely broken. Completely responsible for every one of its master's commands. Likewise, a meek and gentle persons does not fight for his own way out of self-will, but for God's way and submission to God's will. So how do we conclude and apply all these aspects here in this verse? Uh, I read this true article, which I thought summed up perseverance and going the distance as related to, to diligently following after fruitfulness, to not give up. And so I want to read it to you. True story. On June 15, 1957, a brand new car, a Plymouth Belvedere, was buried in a concrete vault under the courthouse lawn in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, for the user, you probably don't ever see these kind of cars, but when I was growing up, this was a big, nice car. Shiny. No one's, no one's agreeing with you, but it was a nice car. Okay. So, in June 2007, so now we're 50 years later, the car was unearthed as the city, city celebrated its 100th year of statehood. 
Writing in a newspaper, the Tulsa World, the publisher Randy Creeble said, Now we know what 50 years in a hole does to a Plymouth Belvedere. Water seeping into the vault had turned the once shiny car into a rusted monument to the past. Everything was eaten away. A hot rod expert was hired to start the engine who pronounced it hopeless. This, this author had definitely had to be a Christian because it says, the article went on to say that this can be likened to our spiritual lives for spiritual inactivity corrodes the soul like moisture acting on metal. Paul urged Timothy, his young protege, to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. This command had no expiration date attached to it. The spiritual disciplines require continued education. I'm sorry. These spiritual disciplines require continuing attention throughout our lives. If rest becomes our goal, then rust is right behind. I also like what Oswald Chambers said about this verse. The intellect works with the greatest intensity when it works continuously. The more you do, the more you can do. We must work hard to keep in trim for God. Clean off the rust and keep bright by use, unquote. Are you demonstrating perseverance by following these attributes of fruitfulness? Or are you beginning to rust away? Third point, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I call this section to persevere, fight your sinfulness. Let me begin this section by first saying that although we are to flee worldliness and follow fruitfulness and now fight sinfulness, don't get the impression that followers of Christ can gain their own righteousness merely through self-effort. Our initial righteousness as well as godliness, faith, and every other aspect of our ongoing sanctification has been bought for us by Christ. Only as we are in Christ do these things become a reality for us by the power of the Holy Spirit residing in us. However, until the day in the future when we are completely free from sin and the spiritual battles of this life are over, we must continue in this day-to-day battle to experience victory that Christ has brought us. This third command, Paul uses the word fight, agonizomai, which we get the word agony. The word itself usually has to do with the agony of athletic struggles and implies that the enemy, Satan, is the competitor in which the athlete is struggling against. When he says here, fight the good fight of faith, we must remember that faith is similar to an endurance race that tests the athlete's determination to keep going despite the cry of every cell in his or her body to slacken or to quit. While false teachers were trying to lead people astray or Satan himself was laying forth temptations to forsake God's ways and thereby sin, Timothy was to stand for biblical truth and take hold of eternal life. Not because it might slip away or because eternal life depended on his effort, but more of an assurance that even though he was in a competition in which he struggled, he had been called by God and confessed his salvation before men. Therefore, he was already predestined to win the trophy of eternal life, for he had his name permanently engraved on it. And it's this truth that 
should encourage us as well in these battles. To every brother, to every sister who feels as if the battle of the Christian life is too daunting, remember Paul's words of encouragement here and as declared in Isaiah 43. He has called you by your name. You are his and he is yours. I like what my Bible says in the footnotes. The good fight concerns the daily struggle with sin in the Christian life and the hardships and adversities in the ministry. A genuine believer demonstrates the reality of faith by being engaged in the warfare and persevering to the end. Unquote. As Ephesians 6 says, may we put on the whole armor of God, especially the shield of faith. Verse 16 says, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And so on this note of demonstrating faith, I want to move on to our last section, verses 13 through 16. I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. I call this last section, To Persevere, Finish with Faithfulness. In verse 13, Paul again assures Timothy that it is Christ that quickeneth or gives life, gives life to all things. And he will enable Timothy to finish the race. Look to Christ for when he was on the line before Pontius Pilate. What did Christ do? He gave a good confession. And it cost him his life for the salvation of the lost. Therefore, Timothy, hold on to this truth. As verse 14 says, keep, or keeping the commandment. And that is the key, keep. Keeping until the end. What are we to fear? Just look to Christ and remember his promises. We can rest in the promise that one day he will appear again. But until then, we are to be faithful and not faithless. The words here, without spot and rebukeable, means Timothy is to be meticulous, detailed in, this, in his obedience to God. And we should do the same as we run the race. Commentators say that in verses 15 and 16, Paul proclaims words of praise and awe of God's greatness. What do we hear him state about the Lord? He is sovereign. He's potentate over everything. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He is immortal. He is eternal. He deserves all praise and honor. First Peter 1, 6 and 7 says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found into praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Flee, follow, fight, finish. As I concluded today, here are the questions I would put before you. Are you, are you persevering in the battles? Are you going the distance? 
As I said, the Christian life is not a 100-yard dash. It's a marathon. Starting well is easy. Finishing well is another manner. How are you doing at running the race? I like what Paul said at the end of his life. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8 For now, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to be only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. One last quote. This is from Matthew Henry. When we are getting tired, when we are ready to rest, when we are ready to quit, excuse not thyself with the good that thou hast done from the good thou hast further to do. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for these attributes. Lord, I pray that you would give us perseverance. If the thoughts of giving in, giving up, come to mind that you would help us to see you, Christ. That we'd see these commands we find here in First Timothy. Lord, help us to grab hold of them. Help us to realize the importance of be obedient to them. So thank you for your word and the instructions it holds. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.